All right. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Living Truth. We're glad you're here. We're in the book of Matthew. Kingdoms in conflict, overcoming temptation. I know that most of you probably don't need a message on temptation. You're probably all good, right? So you can just go grab a cup of coffee and a maple bar if there's any left. Now, we're excited to bring this to you. It, it is the uh, temptation that our Lord faced or the testing that he faced uh, against the enemy. Matthew chapter 4. We're going to get right into it. So let's just pray before we start. Father, thank you for all the precious people who have gathered on this Sunday morning. This is your day. Every day is your day, and we lay it at your feet. This content, Lord, is extremely important for our walk to understand testing and temptation to understand how you, Jesus, navigated it, how you use the word of God, which is living and active, and we can use it too. You said three times, it is written. And we know the power and authority of the word of God in our lives is so key, so instrumental. So would you help us to set aside all distractions right now? And as we come before your holy word, we know it's going to do its work we know it comes down like the rain and it, it produces what you've intended for it. The one thing that you ask of us is that we be good soil. We be receptive soil. We want to honor our king and as we talk about kingdoms and conflict, we know that there's a kingdom of light and we know there's a kingdom of darkness. We know we have a spiritual battle. We want to gain a little bit more insight into that, but not just have knowledge. We want to apply that knowledge. So would you help us, Lord, to apply the word of God, and would you give us wisdom as we go through the word of God? Would you bless the time? In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. amen. Matthew 4, the beginning of verse 1, with the words then, is a connecting word, and it takes us back to the great scene that we studied last Sunday, the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ. In that monumental moment, Jesus came to the Jordan, he approached John the Baptist, Baptize me. John said, oh, no, 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 no. You need to baptize me. I'm not worthy of the untie of, you know, your sandals. And Jesus said, permit it that we might fulfill all righteousness. If you just want to simplify it, that we might do what's right. I mentioned to you guys that in, when you study the Gospels, one thing that you need to see is Jesus retracing the fallen footsteps of Israel. Israel went through the Red Sea and out into the wilderness. 1 Corinthians 10 says they were baptized into Moses, but after they crossed the Red Sea, they sang some praise songs to God. They were rejoicing. The Lord is a mighty warrior. The Lord is his name. He's exalted. He cast horse and rider into the sea. Our God is great, but it didn't take long until they were falling to their own weaknesses. And God could have taken them on a two-week journey along the coast, and they would have ended up in the promised land, but they were not ready for that. They actually needed the wilderness experience. And we're going to see how the Lord will model for us how to overcome temptation and how to deal with it. Notice in verse 1, then, following this monumental moment, let me just say that the monumental moment of Jesus' baptism included the heavens opening and the Father making a declaration as the Spirit came upon Jesus. This is my beloved son, in him I am well pleased. Twice in these temptations, the devil will say to Jesus, if you are the son of God, if you're God's beloved son, then this. Identity is a huge part of temptation. Sometimes the enemy wants to get you to question your faith, where you stand with God, if there is a God, and oftentimes we find ourselves right at those crossroads. Did God really say, he said to Adam and Eve in the garden, or are you really God's beloved son? Then why are you hungry? Why are you going to face a cross? This is how the enemy comes at us. And Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness after the baptism. Immediately he goes from baptism to temptation, that's often how our lives are, right? We go to a church service, we're feeling good, we're singing songs about God, we sense the Spirit, we get into our car, we begin to discuss where we might eat that afternoon, and conflict arises. 
Where do you want to eat? I don't care. All right, let's go here. Well, <laughs> I really, really don't want to go there. But you said you didn't care. Well, I sort of care. <laughs> or we might get on the 91 freeway on a Sunday afternoon and we're like, there, there won't be traffic on the 91 on a Sunday afternoon, right? Wrong. <laughs> it is a cursed freeway. You all know that? It's under the curse. Anyway. We talk a lot in the Christian world about the Spirit-led life. Galatians 5 says we're to be led by the Spirit, uh, not by the flesh. Well, do you know where the Spirit led Jesus? Into the wilderness to be tested. Is it possible that you and I need to widen our view of the Spirit-led life? You know, years ago we were doing some studies. They were New Believer studies. And have you discovered the wonderful Spirit-filled life? Well, the Spirit-led life can lead you into testing. That's what happens with Jesus, and it does happen with us. There's a, there's a word here that's used for uh, tempted at the end of verse 1 there. It's a word, pirasmas, in the Greek. There's about five different variations used in these 11 verses. And the word can either mean to tempt or to test, depending on the context and the one who's delivering the test or the temptation. This is very key, and this is something important to write down. What the devil wants to do with a temptation is destroy you. What God wants to do with a test is develop you. So what Satan means for evil, God can turn for good. Now, God never tempts us to evil, but God can exploit even Satan's ploys, as he did in the book of Job, and turn them around for good. Satan wants to destroy, God wants to develop. Testing and temptation can often confirm us and conform us more into the image of Jesus Christ. And certainly we don't invite it into our life. And we might not even feel like when we're in a test that that's spirit-led. But let me just say, we may want to widen our view here because this is spirit-led. And Jesus goes out into the wilderness as part of God's divine plan. Yes, to fulfill everything that's right. This is also part of God's redemptive plan for us. Jesus will fulfill all righteousness. He will live the perfect life for us. It's also a model of how we're to do it. If Jesus used the word of God, we can use the word of God. We're to walk in the same manner as he walked. And so he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. The word for wilderness, if you're taking notes, is eremos in Greek, E-R-E-M-O-S. And it speaks of a lonely, deserted place. Uh, this is what O'Donnell says about it. He says, the road to glory is not paved with gold and lined with daisies. Gold is refined through fire, not by being thrown onto a pile of marshmallows. We move like our Lord from baptism into battle. And we probably, all of us would ask questions, well, why? Why do we have to go through proving? Why testing? Why does God do this? Because we all know that when things are easy for us, we're not challenged, we don't develop, we don't grow when everything is just at our beck and call and at our fingertips, it's easy. And frankly, we can conclude that we don't even need God. But when everything is stripped away, when we don't have anything except to rely on the Lord's resources, now we're going to grow. Now he's going to stretch us. And we need to know the enemy's tactics, and they are before us. And this is divine testing, no doubt. The enemy wants to use it to, to tempt him. And... Out into the wilderness he goes. There's a couple of Old Testament scriptures. Without you turning to them, let me share a few of them. Right after the, uh, they move through the Red Sea, Egyptian army is drowned. Exodus 15, 22 reads this way. Moses led Israel from the Red Sea. They went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. We find here that Jesus is fasting 40 days and 40 nights. They came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And so the people said, oh, it'll be all right. The Lord did 10 mighty plagues to the Egyptians. He just opened the sea and closed it on the Egyptian army. I'm sure a major drinking fountain will appear. 
be of good cheer. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. They began to murmur and whine. I'm sure that this is not familiar territory to any of you. Complaining and whining and murmuring. But that's what they did. Where's the water? Why don't we have something to drink? And so they grumbled. Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. There he made for them a statute and a regulation, Exodus 15, 25, and there he tested them. And he said, If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments, keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. In Exodus 16, they went out to the wilderness of sin, interestingly enough, maybe a root of Sinai. They set out from Elam, all the congregation. They came to the wilderness of sin between Elam and Sinai. The 15th day of the second month, one month removed from their deliverance from Egypt. And the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses in the wilderness. And the sons of Israel said to them, Exodus 16, 3, would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate the bread to the full. For you brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, Exodus 16, 4, whether they will walk in my Torah, my instruction, or not. Well, we know what happened to the children of Israel. They failed time and again in the wilderness. In fact, 1 Corinthians 10 says that most of them were laid low in the wilderness because they would not obey God and they would not trust God. And the book of Hebrews tells us the problem. The problem was unbelief. Despite what they had seen, despite the glory cloud with them day and night, they still wouldn't obey. And you and I have the Holy Spirit and how often do we find ourselves not obeying God? even though we've had plenty of confirmation and affirmation in our lives. During this 40 days, it is clear that the Spirit impelled Jesus. Mark 1.12 says the Spirit impelled, you could say compelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, Mark 1.13, being tempted by Satan. These three temptations were not the only ones. He was tempted through the whole 40 days. But at the end of the 40 days, these are the ones that the Holy Spirit decided we needed most. And they come at the end of his time of fasting. He was with the wild beast, Mark 1.13, and the angels were ministering to him. Luke 4.1, another parallel passage says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, this is the key to overcoming temptation, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And off he goes into a lonely place. One writer said, I have found that loneliness or solitude in temptation can be my greatest enemy. When we are being overwhelmed by temptation, our tendency might be to isolate ourselves. Perhaps from, you know, not walking with God as close, maybe fellowship with others. And what we find is solitude is not good for us. Solitude can often be the devil's playground. Now, it doesn't mean you can't be alone at times, but the, the point is this. When Israel went out into the desert and the resources were not right there, they found that they met themselves and it wasn't very pretty. The wilderness is the ultimate place of testing and temptation. It's often where the enemy attacks the most and where God shapes and molds us the most. And it can be hard. In Hebrew, the word for wilderness is midbar, it is defined by various lexicons as a wilderness or pasture. It can speak of a large uninhabited place. And it also means mouth or speech. The wilderness is the place of the word. It's where you learn to rely upon the word. And it connects with this idea of speech. The root word for word is devar in Hebrew. Most frequently translated as a thing or a word in the Hebrew picture language, word, devar, means the door into a person or the door of maturity. 
So when we're out in the wilderness and we have a chance to see God's word work in our lives because it's living and powerful, that's when we mature. That's when we grow. And that's when things are revealed in us that may not be too pretty. That's the place of testing and stretching. And that's what God does. And if you're right there in the wilderness at this given moment, be of good cheer. Perhaps it's been spirit-led. And God can exploit it for his good purposes. To confirm you. To develop you. I'm not saying it's fun. Nor am I saying I understand every angle of it. Because I certainly don't. But the Lord is about to meet the tempter. He's at the end of verse 1. Notice he's led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He's described by three different names in our text. The devil in verse 1, the tempter in verse 3, and Satan in verse 10. Devil is diabolos. In Greek, it means a slanderer, an accuser, one who accuses falsely. Satan is satanus. It means an adversary or an opponent. And of course, the word tempter is quite obvious. And so there is Jesus out into the wilderness. The enemy meets him there. And after he had fasted 40 days, Matthew 4, 2, and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Well, I would say, <laughs> I don't know how many of you have ever taken up a fast, but a fast can certainly bring out all the ugliness in us, right? We can have great intentions. Maybe you've made a declaration. You know what? I'm going to fast. Maybe you made a declaration at the turn of the calendar, that New Year's resolution thing. All right, it's over. I'm fasting sweets for the next 30 days. And then someone has a birthday and there's <laughs> chocolate cake. You're like, everything's sanctified by the word of God in prayer, right? Don't make declarations. <laughs> Just get yourself in trouble, right? And so Jesus is there and he's been fasting. Uh, you know, I think of people talk about fast today and, and maybe fasting from social media. Social media is so addicting, isn't it? Have you ever tried to just put your phone away for an afternoon? Some of you need it right by your side. Oh, <laughs> you're the only one that really understands me. <laughs> oh, we're in trouble, people. And so he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. You know, the, that uh, number 40 is significant. It's a number for testing and preparation in the Bible. Moses was up on the mountain and he fasted as he was receiving the law for 40 days and 40 nights. And this is a number that's interesting all throughout our Bibles. And God is doing this stretching work. And he does it in our lives. And Jesus is modeling it for us. How did the children of Israel do while Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights? Not so good. In fact, during that time, they made a golden calf. And they began to worship it. And they said, as to this Moses, we don't know what's happened to him. Clock is ticking here. And they made a golden calf and they proclaimed, this is your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. This first temptation, and I want to try to simplify it for all of us taking notes, is about this. It's about taking things into your own hands instead of trusting God. It's about not making golden calves because God hasn't worked in your timeline or even in your way. And so Jesus has been fasting 40 days and 40 nights. He becomes hungry. Physiologists tell us that when you begin a fast of this length, what happens is you lose your hunger after about five to seven days. You won't be hungry anymore. You become hungry again at about day 40 when you're about to die. If you don't get food, you will die. That's when the enemy came with these temptations when Jesus was on the verge of death. So you can see how, how significant this is and how the enemy will often come to us at moments of desperation, moments when, you know, maybe in our humanity, and Jesus was certainly fully human, when we don't get what's going on. Jesus told us to keep watching and praying 
because the enemy is on the prowl. He goes about as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And certainly Satan wanted to devour this one who would ultimately destroy him. This was mano y mano. This is spiritual battle. And there is Jesus hungering. And the enemy comes. And here's what the tempter did. The tempter came, verse 3, and he said to him, If you're the Son of God, questioning that divine proclamation at his baptism, command these stones become bread. If you see pictures of the Judean wilderness, there's limestone rocks everywhere. They strangely look like round loaves of bread. (laughs) Jesus was in this kind of environment. And the enemy basically said this to him. And we know this is going to happen later. Later on, he's going to feed 5,000. He can make food. He's going to feed 5,000 plus women and children, 4,000 plus women and children, twice in his ministry, from five loaves and two fish. He makes all this food. He has the power to make food. How many days into your wilderness wandering would you be making a bean, rice, and cheese burrito in the name of Jesus? (laughs) Right? Having the power complicates it even more. Because now I don't want to use my power. I want to trust my father. But I've got it at my hands. The crowd in Jerusalem said to Jesus, if you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Matthew 27, 40, and we'll believe in you. If you were up on the cross and you had people mocking you and spitting at you and reviling at you and you had the power to come down from that cross with the power of x-ray vision, poof, I'd be knocking off people left and right. I'd fry the landscape. Oh yeah? Let me tell you something. Look, you know, in our humanity, think about the control that Jesus had. And think about this. Think about the weight that he carried his whole earthly life. Some people say, oh, was Jesus really tempted? Because after all, he couldn't sin, right? He was God and man, and and he wasn't going to fall to the temptations. Were they real temptations? Yes, they were real. Here's an illustration that another writer gave. He said, imagine an Olympic weightlifter, and he goes up to the bar, and he's got a ton of weight. Let's say he's trying to set a world record, and and he picks the weight up, and he gets it almost where he can turn it over and he drops it. Maybe his back tweaks or something. And he felt the weight, but he failed. Now imagine another weightlifter comes up and he takes the bar and he gets it over and and he pushes it up. Which of the two felt the weight more? The one who succeeded. Jesus felt the real weight of temptation, yet without sin. And there are two passages I want to show you. These are worth turning to. They're both in the book of Hebrews. We're teaching Hebrews on Wednesday nights. I would encourage you to come out. Come on out if you don't have anything else going on. Uh, Hebrews 2 and 4 is what I want to show you. Both amazing promises about our sympathetic high priest. Here's what Hebrews 2.16 says. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, Hebrews 2.16, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham which we all are if we're believers. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brethren, Hebrews 2.17, in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. To make propitiation, you can think of satisfaction, payment for the sins of the people. For since he, he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able, what your Bible say? to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Skip over to Hebrews 4, look at verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, in light of this truth, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The original language there has this idea of God stabilizing grace in our storms. Back to Matthew 4. You may be asking, well, how does God help us in our storms? What kind of help does he give? He gives spiritual strength, grace, if you will, 
But he gives us something else. He gives us his word. And we can stand on his promises. In fact, right before that section of Hebrews 4 that we just read, it says the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And it is it produces in our lives. So he gives us stabilizing grace, the power of the Holy Spirit. He gives us the word of God. Jesus will use both here. And the tempter comes to him. Command these stones turn into bread. You have the power. You have the right. If you're the son of God, well, then he should take care of you, right? How could the father let you go hungry? How could you be going through this right now? But Jesus answered, verse 4, it is written, single Greek word, gay grapti, it's the idea of the present power and validity of God's word. It is written, it will stand written forever. Man shall not live on bread alone, quoting from Deuteronomy 8.3. All three quotes from either Deuteronomy 6 or Deuteronomy 8 here. Man shall not live on bread alone. God knows you need bread, but it's not uh, for you to live on it alone but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Don't take things into your own hands. Don't put the physical before the spiritual. Yes, God knows you need bread, but he knows what you need more than physical food, and that is to work in your spirit, to work in your soul. Don't take things into your own hands. Many years ago, my wife and I moved to the city of Corona. It was the mid-90s. We owned a little condo in Anaheim, and we uh, saw this house in Corona and we fell in love with the house. And so we decided we would rent this condo and we would move to Corona. We've been in that house for 27 years now. And it's been awesome for us. And so we had multiple renters go through and this condo, we bought it when the market was a little higher. And so it was difficult to get the right renter. We had probably one good renter of about, I don't know, five or so. And so people, you know, they would pay us half of it or they wouldn't pay on time. And we finally got this guy in making all these promises about his income and his business. And he turned out to be an utter nightmare. Have you ever seen the movie Pacific Heights with Michael Keaton? It was kind of bordering on that. And time went by. He owed us about $20,000 in back rent. And finally, we sold the condo it transferred ownership. He had promised to get out by a certain date. And when it transferred to the new owner, he didn't leave. And the real estate broker was questioning my integrity and even said to me on the phone, you know, I listen to Pastor Chuck Smith and Pastor Chuck Smith would never pull something like this. And I was like, <laughs> and I started squeezing my steering wheel while driving, picturing the face of this particular renter. And I went to a group of racquetball buddies, uh, this obviously in the mid-90s, and I was a pastor. I was working full-time, but also pastoring the church. And I told them the story one afternoon, and they said, well, Michael, just say the word and we'll take care of it. <laughs> and for a brief moment, I thought, you know, if a couple guys in dark suits appear at the condo, this could be good. Could be very bad for a pastoral career, but, you know, I was very tempted to take things into my own hands just for a moment, a brief moment. <laughs> Don't get worried. And I said, oh, no, no, I, I can't do that. Now, now think about, this is what I want you to hear. So as time went by, we, we finally he left. The marshals came and they got him out and the, the new owner took over. We found out, my wife and I found out that his wife, the renter's wife, didn't know what was going on. She divorced him. And over about the next, I don't know what it was, hon, five years, she repaid us every cent of that 20 grand. And when we were thin on money and things were a little tight for us, inevitably a check would show up from this lady. She paid off the entire debt of her husband while battling cancer. And when we were getting near the end, I said to her, Look, we, we just want to forgive you the debt. You've gone above and beyond. She refused and paid us every single cent. If I would have taken things into my own hands, not, would I, not only would I not have seen that grace, but I probably would not be standing before you right now. <laughs> you would have seen newspaper articles about, you know, pastor and corona hires 
Three men in dark suits. <laughs> Jesus had the power, but he knew what God was doing in his life, and it was to, if you will, stretch him because he was human, perhaps a consideration to prepare him for what was ahead because God knows what's ahead of us and we don't. Now Jesus knew what he was going to face, but I think you get the, the point on a human plane. Better to have an empty belly than an empty soul. Don't get ahead of God. It never pays off. It can seem, you know, that in the moment it's the expedient thing to do. I had a friend tell me one time that some people will, will give up their whole lives for five minutes of pleasure. They'll ruin everything. It doesn't mean that you can't come back from a fall, but I think you get the point. Jesus is basically saying, and he will say this later in the Gospel of John, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And Jesus uses the sword, Ephesians 6 16 and 17 talk about pieces of our armor and spiritual battle. And we have a shield of faith which, which, with which we can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the wicked one. We also have a sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And the word for word there in Ephesians 6, 17 is not lagos, it's rhema. It's a specific word for a specific moment to counter a specific temptation. Every time you get tempted, if you quote John 3.16, that may be wonderful, but it may not apply. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. <laughs> Maybe if that's the only verse you know, then quote it. But let's say that you feel anxious. What should you do? Well, the Bible says be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And then it says to begin to think about what is pure, what is good, what is lovely. How good are you and I at using the word in our moments of temptation? It's one thing to know the word of God. It's another thing to use it. Let's say you feel fearful. Well, there's so many scriptures that talk about fear not. There's a scripture that says the Lord has not given us a spirit of fear. 2 Timothy 1.7, but of power. Love and a sound mind. The master swordsman, our king, is showing us how to battle the prince of this world. If he needed to do it, how much more do I need to do it? And I know none of us have arrived in this, but certainly this is a key that we stand on promises and quote the word of God, whether in our soul or out loud or both. Your word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. We've got to use the word of God. And we've got to know the word of God. And I look at our landscape in the West and I look at churches that have exploded in growth and many of them have followed a model where the pastor will put a single verse on the screen give scant attention to it, hopefully it's in context, and give you a 20-minute sermonette and send you on your way. That's not what you need, brethren. We need to know the Word of God. We need to know context. We need to memorize Scripture. We need to wipe the dust off our Bibles and get into the Word of God. The best defense is a good offense. Amen? So if your Bible's been put aside, is it any wonder that you're getting pummeled by the enemy? And so the devil next took Jesus into the holy city. This is verse five, Matthew four. That would be Jerusalem. Had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. Now Jesus has been out in the wilderness and there's a little debate among scholars. Did he literally go to the holy city or is this a visionary experience? Was he transported in the spirit, if you will? In the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel ends up in Jerusalem in the spirit, though he's physically in Babylon. I, I think it's a minor point, whether or not he was literally on the temple, literally on a high mountain. What high mountain could show you all the kingdoms of the world? That's where the debate lies, right? So whatever the case may be, he has him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, 
If you're the son of God attacking his identity again, throw yourself down. Two can play at this game. For it is written, says Satan. Did you know that Satan knows scripture? He quotes Psalm 91 here. He says, for it is written, he will give his angels, his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways, his part that he didn't quote. And on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Oh, you live by the Bible? Oh, cool. Here's a Bible verse. He quotes Psalm 91, which is a psalm about trust. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. It's all about trusting God through good times and bad times. And then it gets down to this promise. This promise is not about doing something stupid and hoping God will bail you out. It's not about going up to the top of a 10-story building and say, you know what? The Bible says his angels will keep me from dashing my foot against the stone. I'm just going to take a leap. I got some pixie dust right here too. I can fly. I can fly. <laughs> well, you are going to find there's a greater law. It's called the law of gravity. Because God is not going to play a game with you. You're not going to command God. You're not going to take God's place and ironically, Satan is a fallen angel. Was Satan saying, if you jump, I'll save you? I don't think so. I think Satan tries to get us to take dumb leaps of faith. I put that in quotes. And then watch us fall to the ground and try to recover if we can. That's his ploy. Satan quotes scripture and whether it is out of context, I'll let you go back and wrestle with this. I think the main issue here is it's misapplied. You can isolate Bible verses, pull them from their original audience, context, purpose, and almost make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. There are people who are uninformed, who twist the scriptures to their own destruction. Just because someone has a Bible and can quote a verse or two, it doesn't mean that you're getting God's counsel. Be very careful. The enemy quotes Bible verses. And he says, look, just go ahead and throw yourself down. You can hear the echo once again of the crowd. Come down from the cross and we'll believe in you. But Jesus wasn't going to buy it. This is a misapplication employing a passage about trusting God and using it to test God. We are never to test God. And this is what Israel did in the desert. They tested God at the waters uh, of Massa. This is uh, Deuteronomy 6.16. Jesus is going to quote it. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. There they quarreled with God and they tested God. They said, is the Lord among us or not? And Jesus said to him, on the other hand, this tells us that you can battle scripture out of context or misapplied with scripture in proper context. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That tells us, verse seven confirms the misapplication the devil used on Psalm 91 twisting trust into a test. And we can't do that. And so Jesus, using once again the Bible, corrects the enemy. The enemy doesn't say anything like, oh, that's a good point, or hey, I never saw that verse that way before. <laughs> no. He just moves on to the next temptation. This is the final one, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. This is an unspecified mountain. There's a mount of temptation near uh, the area of Jericho. And some people believe that this could be the mountain. But what mountain could you see all the kingdoms of the world from? So whether this is literal or not, I leave to you. But he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to Jesus, all these things I will give you. If you fall down and worship me. By the way, the original language here has the idea of just once and just for a moment. 
Just bow down once. And he dangled the carrot. One bow. And then you don't have to deal with Gethsemane. You don't have to be betrayed by a friend. You don't have to sweat out great drops of blood. You don't have to feel the pressure of the cross. You don't have to be betrayed by a friend, disowned by your nation. Be on that cross and be ridiculed and, and feel forsaken of your father and all that you will go through. Ah, oh, you could skip all of that. I've got a shortcut for you. If you're taking notes, first temptation... Take things into your own hands. Second temptation, force a miracle. Take a false leap of faith. Test God. Try him. Third uh, temptation, take a shortcut. One bow. One moment of your life. What's the big deal? Can you imagine the Son of God bowing before the devil? Can you imagine any son or daughter of God bowing before the devil? Every knee will bow to Christ. He doesn't bow to Satan. But Satan makes it sound so good. Just one bow. One moment. You can avoid all that suffering. All that pain. You can have, you know, the father said in Psalm 2.8, I'm sure he knew this psalm, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. Jesus at the end of the book of Matthew will say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Could Satan give Jesus all authority in heaven? He got kicked out of heaven. What could he, could he make do on his promise to give him all the kingdoms of the world? What kind of authority did Satan have? Well, he's called the prince of the world by Jesus, called the God of this age by Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Did he have something to give? Perhaps something but it would still be empty. It still wouldn't ultimately deliver. And think of what it would have done. The Son of God would have violated his relationship with God. He would have become imperfect. He would have sinned. Our redemption would be lost. And the usurper who entered the garden in Genesis 3 would have had his way. Adam and Eve, our first parents, there in the garden. Here comes the enemy. He comes to them in a perfect garden space with all the fruit trees accessible to them except one. What does he do? Oh, well, if you eat this fruit, you'll be as gods. Adam and Eve fell on their face in a garden paradise. The second Adam, do you see the picture? Jesus faces off with the enemy in a wilderness and defeats him. And he becomes a life-giving spirit to us. That's what the Bible teaches. The second Adam, the, the great uh, God in human flesh, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, comes to defeat the enemy, to purchase our redemption at the cross, to resurrect, to defeat death. Satan had nothing to give. Spurgeon calls him a liar, a murderer, and a wretched traitor. Giving promises which he can't make do on. In fact, he knew that if Jesus would have bowed, it would have undone everything that God had planned. That's what he does. You're a king, right? King of kings, Lord of lords, isn't that what it said about you? Well, take a shortcut. Make an unholy alliance just for a minute. You know, what got Israel in trouble when you read your Old Testament is they made all these unholy alliances with Egypt and Assyria and Syria. And what happened to them? They refused to trust God. And it went very bad. And Jesus has come to make things right. To purchase back the title deed of the earth, which we see in Revelation 5. To take it away from the usurper. No, he won't bow. And no, you shouldn't bow either. He quotes Deuteronomy 6.13, which says, You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. The next verse says, You shall not follow other gods any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. And so with these three temptations, it is written, it is written, it is written. And then Jesus said to Satan, he said, get out of here. <laughs> he said to the devil, get lost. The devil left him and the angels came and ministered to him. See, the help did come after Jesus passed the test. 
I'm sure he had some angel food, pancakes, and uh, whatever else. The angels did minister to him, but they, this had to be fulfilled. The devil left him. And the angels came, came and began to minister. Same Greek word uh, that's used in Hebrews 1.14 of the angels. They're ministering spirits come to minister to those who will inherit salvation. The devil slunk away like a reprimanded dog with his tail between his legs. And the temptation ended. I want to say something to you that stuck out of me this week. Temptations do end. The pressure does lift. Things in your life that you'd struggled with for years can be in your rearview mirror. It can happen. It does happen. And sometimes the enemy comes to us and like, oh, you'll never get over this. You're just going to keep falling to this. You know, you've already done it 500 times. What does 501 matter? And here's the truth, that if you stand and you decide to quote scripture instead of falling on your face again, all of a sudden, if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. That's James 4, verse 7. But it says something else. It says, submit to God. <laughs> then you can resist the devil and he will flee from you. We need God's resources. It's not about us just, all right, I'm going to stand strong now. I know I can do it. I... <gasps> no. It's submit to God. Ask for his power, his grace. Resist the devil, James 4, 7, and he will flee from you. This is 1 Peter 5, 9 through 11. Resist him firm in your faith knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever and all God's people said, amen. There's hope for all of us. Yes, it's true, the devil did come back. He looked for a more opportune time, Luke 4.13. In fact, when Jesus is getting ready to go to Jerusalem and face the cross, what happens? Peter comes to him and says, oh no, Lord, uh, this will never happen to you. There's, there's no cross in your future. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. The devil did show up again in Jesus' earthly ministry even through a trusted disciple, his perhaps most trusted one, Peter. And he spoke again. Once again, what? Now, there's another way. Go another way. Use Peter. And I'm sure Peter was devastated, but here's the point. Temptations lift, the devil flees, and when you stand strong, there's something else that happens. You'll be a little stronger for the next time. A little bit more discerning. You might say something like this. I've seen this before. I've seen this carrot dangle before. I've seen this uh, pretty bait before, but it has a hook inside of it, and I'm not going there. I'm not going there. I will leave you with one more thought. There is such a thing as proactive protection. Not giving the devil a foothold. 1 Corinthians 7, 5 applies it to marriage. Come again together, lest Satan tempt you. Ephesians 4 applies it to unresolved anger. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. There's such a thing as a proactive uh, protection where you do some things so you don't put yourself in the position. Amen? So there are some ways that we can resolve things or you know, not, don't keep the door open to him. Don't give him a peg to stand on. And if temptation comes, the resources of heaven will be there to help us. Father, thank you for this section of scripture. It's very illuminating, very important for all of us. We all face temptations of various kinds, Lord. And we may find ourselves right there at this moment. Sometimes the greatest temptation is to give up or to get ahead of you, or not lean into heaven's wisdom or resources. And Lord, we're all prone to do it. And thank you for this great example of our great high priest who showed us how to conquer, who fulfilled all righteousness, and who is in heaven 
interceding for his people. And when we face our moments, Lord, of wanting to fold up the tent and give in, would you help us, Lord, to lean into you a little bit more and, and know your plans are good, your ultimate uh, destiny for each of us as believers is a wonderful one. We will experience new heavens and a new earth. We will experience a new body. We will experience this sin-cursed creation once and for all in our rearview mirror. You will wipe away every tear from our eyes. As we wait, Lord, as we walk through the desert of this world, and it often feels just like that, would you help us to trust you, to not be like ancient Israel? Help us to learn and if we've made mistakes, and we all have, Lord, we've all fallen short. Help us to learn from those and keep moving forward. And understand that part of this picture, a big part of this picture, is that you came to do what we could never do for ourselves. You lived the perfect life. You died on that cross as our sinless substitute. You resurrected from the dead, and we're so grateful because that is how we get saved. And would you keep your heart bowed? If you are not a Christian this morning, you're watching via live stream, it's be a wonderful time to ask Jesus to save you. He's already done the work. The cross has already happened. The resurrection has happened. But you must place your faith in Jesus Christ. And that would mean repenting of your sin, maybe even your sin of self-will and pride. Repent of that and trust in him. Maybe you're a prodigal and you've been wandering and maybe you feel like you're in a wilderness right now. Come back and he'll bring into your life living waters, even living waters in the desert because he's good. And Father, for this precious congregation, strengthen us all. We, we realize that we hear a message like this, we're probably gonna be confronted with a temptation sooner than later. <laughs> so help us apply what we've heard. Help me to do that, Lord. So when we're feeling more weak and vulnerable, we can be on the alert and know the resources of heaven are more than sufficient to give us victory in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray, all God's people said, amen.